And as the kids head back to Children's Church, I'll invite the rest of us to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. The book of Matthew, chapter 1, we're just going to do a few verses this morning as we continue on just telling the the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, this morning. Book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which read this way, and I'm reading from the ESV translation, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Our Father and God, be with us this morning as you have been with us and are with us in Jesus Christ. We pray that for here in this room, for for those who may be watching online, for those who may hear um, what is going on here this morning, for those in in the other room gathered in children's church, Lord, and all of it, may your name be made great, may the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, be made great, and let us find our hope and our peace and our rest in him this morning and marvel at the birth of our Savior. Amen. I've said many times before, and I'll say it again, I love Christmas. I love kind of all of it. I love the Christmas season. I love the the tackiness of it, the kitschiness of it, the the colored lights, the traditions, the the food, the... Gift-giving and receiving, the pageantry, uh, I just, I like the Christmas season. And if you knew my parents, you'd know that I come by that love for Christmas, quite honestly. Uh, Christmas is a big deal in our home, and if you were to go to my parents' house right now, you would walk around, and you would see everywhere nativity scenes. My mother, like many, is an avid collector of nativity scenes, and I've lost track of how many there are. It's been a while since I've been here, so maybe there are more since I've left. But there are nativity scenes everywhere, and I love that. There is something about the nativity scene that captures a certain wonder. There's something about the Christmas season that captures wonder, but particularly in that nativity scene, you see the star, the visitors, the Animals, and sometimes they're embellished how many animals are actually there and the kinds and frequency, but animals, and at the center of it all, 
is the manger and the child Jesus, surrounded by Mary and Joseph. And I don't know how often you've thought about this, or maybe never, but one of the miracles in that nativity scene is that there are two parents there. Particularly, that Joseph is there right alongside Mary to raise, care for, and love Jesus as his own child. How that happened is detailed in the text this morning. It is nativity scene. The word nativity means the occasion of a person's birth. This is the occasion of Jesus' birth, and we see it as a wonderful, incredible, miraculous birth. And the question I want to ask this morning is just one simple question. Is what makes the birth of Jesus wonderful? Why such the celebration at Christmas and all the things that come along with it? What makes the season wonderful? What makes the birth of Jesus itself wonderful? And to answer that question, I'm just going to focus on three people. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. What makes the birth of Jesus wonderful? The first answer is found for us in verse 18 and focuses on Mary. So that's where I want to focus first, and specifically on the innocence of Mary. What makes the birth of Jesus wonderful? Part of it is the innocence of Mary. Now, when I refer to the innocence of Mary, I do not mean that she was sinless or perfect. You may have heard of the concept of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. That's not the Immaculate Reception. That's something different. The Steelers and Franco Harris, well, that's not what I'm talking about. There's the Immaculate Conception. And you may not know actually what the Immaculate Conception is. It's actually a Catholic doctrine that has to do with the birth of Mary. We often associate Immaculate Conception as talking about Jesus. No, it's actually not. It's talking about Mary's birth. And the Immaculate Conception is the idea that Mary at birth, in her conception, was born without original sin. And the Immaculate Conception idea teaches that, that Mary did not have a sin nature, and that's what allowed Jesus to be born without sin. We, as Protestants, if I can call us that, we actually do not hold to that teaching. We as Protestant, Evangelical, whatever you want to call us, I'll call us Mennonite brethren as Christians, we don't hold to that teaching. We believe that Mary, just as anybody else outside of Jesus Christ himself, was a sinful person who needed saving and needed a Savior. That's what we believe. The idea that she was sinless is nowhere taught in Scripture. In fact, Scripture implies throughout that she was also a person who needed saving from her own sins by her son. So we don't hold that Mary was sinless or perfect, but we do marvel at her incredible innocence and her righteousness and her purity in the birth of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. When was Jesus conceived? 
by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary while she was betrothed to Joseph. What is betrothal? In that culture, in that context, betrothal was a more serious commitment than engagement. It was kind of somewhere between full marriage and engagement. Betrothal was when a man and a woman were committed to one another. They were formally committed to one another through witnesses. Sometimes there would be an exchanging of a gift or a declaration of intent, a legally binding document that they were going to be married to each other. Often the betrothal period was about one year. During that time, they would be called husband and wife. In order to separate, they would have to go through a formal divorce. So they were considered husband and wife, but they weren't yet fully married. The woman would live in her father's house until the date of marriage. And at that date, once the betrothal period was over, there would be a feast celebration of marriage, and the husband would take the wife into his own home. During that betrothal period, it was shameful, it would be a disgrace, it would be a great sin to cheat on your spouse or that to whom you were engaged. To break that covenant of marriage during the betrothal period was a great sin. Having sexual relations with somebody else would have been a shameful thing. And according to Deuteronomy 22 in the Old Testament, that was a sin worthy of death by stoning. By the time we get to Jesus' day, that punishment of death by stoning was not really carried out, but if somebody committed adultery in the betrothal period, there would certainly be a public divorce, a shaming, a sending away of the unfaithful partner. So when we meet Mary, she is betrothed, committed to Joseph. She is also a teenager. We don't know exactly how old, but just about every guess is that she was somewhere between the ages of 13 to 17. That was the common betrothal age at the time. And at that time, she was found to be with child. She was a virgin. And yet, by miracle, pregnant. There may be many others who have claimed virgin birth or virgin conception, this is the one true one in history. My question for you this morning is, do you believe it? Do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? That Mary had Jesus in her womb, though she was a virgin, though she was innocent. It is a miracle, but we believe in miracles. As Christians, we are a miracle-believing people. We believe in creation which itself is a miracle. How did all of this come to be? One minister says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. By a miracle of God, he created everything, and by a miracle of God, the innocent Mary was given a child. Now the question was, would Joseph believe that? How is he going to respond? His soon-to-be bride, all of a sudden, pregnant. How would he respond? How did Mary respond? She's going to be a mother. 
And through a miracle of God, the Holy Spirit has given her a son in the womb. She's now expecting a child and consider the weight on her shoulders. She is given the incredible task of bearing the Savior of the world. And at the same time, has to somehow tell those around her, this was God's work, not mine. I am innocent. Was she fearful as she had that conversation with her soon-to-be husband, Joseph? What kind of burden was on a teenager's shoulders in this? How would she respond? We know how she responded. It's not in this text, but in Luke, we see the response of Mary. And those of you who know that passage, how does Mary respond to the news that she was going to bear the Savior of the world and she would do so as a virgin, as an innocent mother? Mary responds in praise and rejoicing. In a wonderful song to God her Father, she sang, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I won't read the whole song of Mary. It's called the Magnificat and found in Luke. But in that song, she sings about how God gives grace to the lowly, how God brings down the proud, how God will visit Israel's salvation according to the promise made to Abraham long ago. And if you read that, what is called the Magnificat, that song of Mary, what you will find is this teenager has incredible theology, an incredible understanding of the Old Testament, an incredible faith and trust in her God. From a young age, put in an incredible position, she responds with rejoicing and praise because she knows who her God is, she knows what the Old Testament says, and she knows that she will bear the Messiah, the stupid song. Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. She was a good theologian. And as an aside, this is why I have great faith in our young people and in our teenagers to understand their Bibles, to praise God, to know their theology. Sometimes we get our priorities out of whack. We expect them to learn calculus, trigonometry, biology, chemistry, social studies, and we expect them to get good grades and all these things, and they should know these things. Then we say, well, Scripture is kind of hard. I don't know if we can teach with theology and doctrine. Of course we can. Mary knew. She knew her Bible as a teenager. Our young people, by God's grace, can know their God as Mary did. And she responded to... It's a wonderful occasion. Jesus' birth by the Holy Spirit with praise. Her character was matched by that of Joseph. He's the second person in the scene that makes the birth of Jesus wonderful. The innocence of Mary was matched by the goodness of Joseph. This story of Jesus' birth tells us about the goodness of Joseph, that who was compassionate toward his bride and faithful to his son and obedient to his God. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put, it, to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I want to stop right there. We know from Scripture that Joseph was a simple guy. He was not a man of means. He was from a family of carpenters. He was a carpenter himself. That was the family trade. He wasn't somebody with power or wealth, but he was righteous and just. He was a man who also knew his Old Testament, his Old Covenant, and he knew the law of God. And that's what it means when it says he was just. It means he was righteous. He knew God's law and he kept it. 
So he would have known what the penalty was for breaking the covenant of marriage and the covenant of betrothal. Only a few months into the commitment, he finds out that his bride-to-be is pregnant. And what is he to do? For all he knew, the only logical assumption he could make is that his bride had cheated on him. And according to the law of God, he had a right to respond at least in divorce. In fact, you could say he almost had an obligation to that to uphold the covenant of marriage according to the Old Testament law. He would have a a value of the sanctity of marriage. Would he respond to the shame brought on him in this covenant with retribution? With wrath? With anger? That's what one of his ancestors did. Last week we went through the genealogy of Jesus and went through the family line and we noted that Joseph, who was a son of David, the king, was also a son of the patriarchs in Judah specifically. Judah, going way back, one of the great, 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 great ancestors of Joseph, was in a somewhat similar situation where a family member of his was pregnant out of wedlock, his daughter-in-law, Tamar. If you know the story, you know Tamar had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And Judah, in all his righteous anger, was upset with her about this. Now, of course, the ironic twist of the whole story is that's his child. He is the one who got her pregnant. He doesn't realize that. And when he learns of his daughter-in-law's unfaithfulness, not knowing it's his own child, he says, when Genesis 38, 24, says Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. That was Judah's response to the immorality of his daughter-in-law, whom he had gotten pregnant. What will be Joseph's response to the apparent as far as he knows, immorality of his bride-to-be. He will uphold the sanctity of the covenant of marriage, but he resolved, because he was a kind and compassionate man, not to shame her, not to punish, not to seek retribution, but to quietly divorce, to let her go back to her own home with dignity and honor, though in his own mind she had cheated on him, In his kindness, he resolves to divorce her quietly. And then, an angel of the Lord tells him the truth of what is going on. We'll get to those verses in a few minutes. The angel tells Joseph, no, that's not a child of immorality. It was by the Holy Spirit that Mary conceived. Go and take this child as your own. In verse 24, we see Joseph's response. When Joseph woke from sleep, 
He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph obeys the angel of the Lord. He obeys God and says, I will take this child as my own. I will give him the name Jesus. And that's a significant thing. Don't overlook that, that Joseph names Jesus. Incredible because Jesus, as we will see, is the son of God, God in the flesh, and yet Joseph is given the task, name him. And that naming is significant. Because to name someone or name something implies ownership and responsibility over it. So, for example, if I go over to your house and you, your wonderful, friendly pet dog comes and starts you know, licking my feet and jumping up on me and wagging his tail, and I pet him and I said, I'm going to rename you. You're Fido. What would you do? You'd say, you don't have the right to name my dog. It's my dog. Only I have the right to name my dog. You can't come over to my house and start renaming my animals. I'm going to rename your kids according to what I want. How's that going to go? No, to name something implies you have some type of ownership or responsibility over it. So when God gives Adam all the animals, what does Adam do? He goes around naming the animals in Genesis 1. That implies that you would have dominion over the animals. These are yours. Give them names. God names Israel, and that's an indication that he is Israel's Savior and God. Isaiah 43.1, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When God calls Israel by name, it is an expression of his ownership over the people. You are mine. You belong to me. I give you a name. So when God says through the angel of the Lord to Joseph, name him Jesus, what he is saying is, that child is yours. Adopt him. Be his father. Joseph, though he was a simple carpenter, he is told by the angel, he's called by the angel, son of David. Meaning, you're from the line of kings in Israel. Give that child your legal status as coming from the line of kings. Make him part of your family. Adopt him. And that is what Joseph did. When he names him Jesus, that is an adoption. And Joseph raised him. We don't see much of Joseph through the rest of the New Testament because we know he died early. We don't know when. We, we see that because when Jesus is on the cross, he tells John, one of his disciples, take care of my mother, which means that Joseph wasn't around. So at some point, Joseph died, but before he died, he raised Jesus as his son, and he taught him. Picture this, that responsibility. As a father, teach the Son of God what it looks like to follow God. This is exactly what he did. Joseph took him to the temple annually to celebrate Passover, taught him what it meant to follow God. We see in Luke 2, 41 42, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Joseph was a father to Jesus and taught him according to custom. Joseph taught Jesus and showed Jesus what it was like to follow the Father. It's an encouragement to all of us who are husbands and fathers to take on that responsibility. Teach 
your children, what it looks like to follow God. Yes, it's an awesome task. Believe me, it was an awesome task for Joseph. But he took it on because he was a good man. And what made the whole scene wonderful is not even Mary or Joseph themselves, but the one who's at the center of the scene. Mary and Joseph, as wonderful as they were, they were normal people. And what made them wonderful, what made the whole scene wonderful, is the one who was born in the manger. And we see that in verses 20 through 23, who this child is. And what makes the scene wonderful is the divinity and the humanity of the Savior. The divinity and the humanity of the Savior, the child Jesus, and one small child is both the fullness of humanity, the fullness of divinity, and the salvation of all of God's people in this one child. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So as Joseph is considering what to do in this situation, the angel of the Lord comes and gives him some vital information about the child that is in Mary's womb. And he really gives him three pieces of information about this child. Three key pieces of information. First, that this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Why is the virgin birth essential to Christianity? To our faith? It's listed in the earliest creeds that we believe Mary was a virgin at Jesus' birth, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why is that important for us? Because it means that Jesus had a human and God himself as his parents. That in Jesus was the union of humanity and divinity. That he wasn't the product of two humans, Rather, he was the product of, he was in one person, two natures, human and divine. He was man and God in one person. And he didn't lack either of humanity or divinity. He was fully God, fully human, in one person, lacking nothing of either. This is one of the great mysteries and miracles of Christianity that we'll never fully be able to wrap our heads around. Think with me how this works. How is it that in this one person is humanity and divinity? How is it that God, who is omnipresent in everywhere, is somehow contained in a human body? Like, what was Jesus' divinity doing as he was sleeping? How is it that, that God, through the Son of God, spoke all things into creation, and yet God was wrapped up in the child who couldn't speak? How does Jesus, who, who was human and fully divine, learn and grow? There, there's this incredible miracle in Christianity that we'll never be able to fully wrap our heads around, but we must affirm that Jesus was both human and divine. Why is that important? Well, if I were to travel to another country where I didn't know the language and couldn't speak it, and if I got 
terribly ill and had to go to the doctor, it would be important for me to be able to communicate with that doctor. What I would need is an interpreter. Somebody who could speak both languages. Somebody who could connect two different worlds together. I would need a mediator. Someone who had both so that I could be saved. That is exactly the situation humanity finds itself in. By its sin, separated from God, God, holy, other, divine, pure, righteous. Humanity, which is sinful, broken, finite. How are those two things going to be connected so they can have a relationship with one another? How is that possible? We need a mediator, somebody who is fully divine, fully human, who can unite both and reconcile them to each other. It's why Paul says of Jesus, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He was one who was able to unite both divine and human together so that we might be connected, united to God in him. It is why the virgin birth is essential, because Jesus must have been born of the Holy Spirit and fully divine. So he is both God and man. Second piece of key information about Jesus is his name. He is to be named Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Name Jesus taken from the Old Testament name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Name him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Never overlook the fact that God decided to send a Savior. When someone is thirsty, you give them water. When somebody is hungry, you give them food. You give them what they need. When people are sinful, under judgment, separated from God, under the curse of death, because of sins, they need a Savior. And that is why God sent a Savior. and His name was to be Jesus. D.A. Carson says it this way. Listen to this quote. It says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. Our greatest need is our relationship with God to be restored, our sin eliminated, our guilt done away with, our judgment removed, peace and wholeness, life restored back with God is why he sent a savior, one who would die on a cross to take away our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. God sent a savior. It's why we call him Jesus because his name means Yahweh is salvation and there's salvation nobody else. There's nobody else that God sent. He has sent one son, Jesus, to save us. And the last thing Joseph needed to know about this one son is his other name, what he'll be called, Emmanuel, God with us. This is in fulfillment of what God said long ago through the prophet Isaiah. About 700 years or so before Jesus' birth, Isaiah the prophet spoke these words. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. 
This prophecy given 700 years ago is originally given to the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, Ahaz. Ahaz, wicked king, bad king. Ahaz was in a war with Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. That war with them and those two other nations were coming to crush Judah. And what they really want to do is eliminate the line of kings. Tear down the throne. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Ahaz is afraid and scared and all his wickedness, he wouldn't turn to God. God sent Isaiah the prophet to him. And Isaiah went to him and told Ahaz the king, call out to God for a sign. Call to God. Reach out to God for salvation. You'll find it. And Ahaz refused. So Isaiah said, fine, God's going to give you a sign. And this is the sign. A young maiden... The virgin will bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. That prophecy was given 700 years before Jesus' birth. There is a lot of debate as to whether that prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah's time. You can read Christian scholars and figure it out for yourself. See what you think. More importantly, where there is no debate, that prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Because Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the almighty God with you. And when he was born, it is God coming to be with us. Jesus, who is man and God, is God with us. He was with us, with the sick to heal, with the demon-possessed to liberate, with lepers to cleanse, with the disease to cure, with the hungry to feed, with the poor in spirit to bless, with the sinful to warn. He was with the lost to seek and to save. Jesus is God with us. And how does Matthew's book end? It ends with Jesus promising his disciples, I will be with you always to the end of the age. In Jesus Christ is God's presence always. And in Jesus Christ we see that God desires to be with his people. We all have, if we're honest, maybe family members or friends or those we work with, that whenever we see their name on the phone, we go, oh. Or maybe I'm the only cruel one. I'm, I'll, fine, I'll wear it. I'm the only one who does this. Everyone's like, oh, I don't know if I want to take that call. I don't know if I want to be around them. That is never how God responds to us. God actually sends his son to be with us. And where did he send his son? Did God send his son to the high places? Did God send his son to the throne? Did God send his son to where the rich people were? Did God send his son to where the religious elite dwelled in the temple? No, we know the story. God sent his son to be born in a manger, in a feeding trough of animals. Why? There is design in that. It is to show you there's no place so low that God won't meet you there. This Jesus Christ is not for the elite, only for the well-off, only for the super-religious, 
that Jesus was born so that God could be with you in the lowest of low places where nobody else will be with you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with you. In all his divinity, in all his humanity, he is the Savior, Emmanuel. This whole birth scene is wonderful because of it. Will you put your faith and trust, your life, in the arms of the Savior? If you will, you will find that God is with you and will give you life forever. Would you pray with me? My Father and God, we thank you, we praise you this morning for this incredible scene where you sent your Son to be the Savior of weak and insignificant people and you give grace for us to follow you. Help us, Lord. For each person in this room, I pray that we would know Jesus is our Savior, as Emmanuel, as God with us. May your name be praised. Amen.